This week on Geek Explained, we're celebrating the release of Shazam! this Friday by counting down the comics that you should read if you want to brush up on the world's mightiest mortal. So join us for another edition of Comics Catch-Up featuring Shazam! Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is another edition of Comics Catch Up. That's the uh, show where we take the latest comic book film and give you a list of comics to check out if you're interested and want to learn more about that film and this film is uh, Shazam Shazam as of this recording releases this Friday in theaters and so I wanted to put together a list of comics that if you wanted to get yourself a little bit more familiarized with the world's mightiest mortal you could check out and read prior to jumping into the theater uh, these are comics Comics that I really think kind of encompass the basic spirit of the uh, of the character and kind of his world. I really think you should check out at least one or two of these, if not all of them. They're all worth your time for sure. But before we get into the list, we're gonna tackle some uh, comic book news, and there was a lot. And I think at least part of that has to do with the fact that WonderCon was this past weekend. Uh, WonderCon took place at the Anaheim Convention Center in Anaheim, California, and I was able to go. I uh, was very lucky. I was very fortunate to be able to get tickets for the Friday and Sunday shows. Saturday was unfortunately sold out, but a lot still happened on both Friday and Sunday. Um, lots of news, lots of panels. Uh, There's a Dark Phoenix panel that kind of showed off some of the film, which sounds interesting. Um, I still don't know exactly what they're trying to accomplish by releasing this film. But uh, yeah, they also had from uh, eyewitness accounts from friends who attended the panel, a very strange Godzilla King of the Monsters panel. Um, there was also quite a few comic book panels as well, um, one of which being focused on the DC Universe app. Uh, the DC Universe streaming service app whatever um had a pretty good presentation i thought i actually attended this panel and i was really impressed by some of the stuff that they brought up uh they did announce that they are bringing 20,000 that's right 20,000 brand new comics to the service and i've been really diving into it in the you know past couple weeks um that's a lot there's a big library on there already, and I think the fact that they're bringing in 20,000 more comics to add to their library in the, in the coming month uh, is a good sign, is a great sign. Um, I'm usually more of a uh, in-hand, you know, flipping 
pages as I go kind of uh, reader when it comes to my comics. But, you know, I have been really taking advantage of the comics that are available on the app. And I know this sounds like a advertisement or whatever. Um, they're not paying me. It would be great if they could pay me. But uh, no, this is just somebody who was skeptical about the app before I got it, and I've been getting a lot of use out of it. Uh, during the panel, we also saw the first look at Swamp Thing, which is uh, releasing very soon, a lot sooner than I think a lot of people were prepared for. Uh, we didn't get a look at Swamp Thing, which I thought was good. They're saving the first look for when the show actually debuts, and I, I can appreciate that. Uh, they're leaning really heavily into the horror aspect, though. I am impressed and a little uh, nervous. They've been kind of hit and miss when it comes to their genre stuff, especially on uh, the DC Universe streaming service with Titans. Again, I wasn't really sold on it, but they've been knocking it out of the park with Doom Patrol, which will continue, of course, on our uh, weekly review series. But I'm really interested to see how they go with the uh, horror aspect. And I'm kind of hoping that at a certain point we do see Matt Ryan's Constantine show up. Uh, we have gotten word from him in interviews that he wants to continue portraying Constantine and have him show up in Swamp Thing, and I think that'd be great. I, uh, I have a hard time seeing anybody else as Constantine right now. Matt Ryan is killing it on Legends of Tomorrow, which I believe is back this week. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited. We also got our first look at Stargirl, uh, the star of the show. I can't remember her name. We got the first look of her in her Stargirl uniform, and she looks good. She looks pretty much as I figured she would. We also got in that photo a little hint teaser at uh, Stripe which is kind of her giant mech robot. So I'm interested. I'm curious. A lot of people have been uh, saying that this is kind of going to be a backdoor into JSA stuff, which as a huge JSA and Jay Garrick Flash fan, I am here for, absolutely. Uh, and Jeff Johns, who wanted to come to the panel, is actually overseeing the show himself. So I know that he has a big love for the JSA and all of the legacy stuff that kind of falls under that banner. So I'm excited. I'm really interested to see where that goes. Uh, we also got the release date for the second half of the most recent Young Justice season. Uh, it's going to be coming back in July. So we've got a little bit of time uh, before that comes back. I'm really excited to get that back. Um, they also have, I guess, moved up the uh, the release date for season two of Titans to this fall. So we have we don't have an official uh, release date on that just as of yet, but they have moved it up. So I'll keep you guys updated as I find out about this stuff. But uh, yeah, the panels I thought were really good. Uh, my personal experience with WonderCon, like I said, I'd never been to WonderCon before. It has been years since I've been to a Comic-Con. The last one, I believe, was Phoenix Comic-Con. God, that had to be three years ago, I think. But um, yeah, I had a great time. There was a ton of amazing cosplay, and I was a huge 
just I was in awe just at seeing the levels of cosplay both from beginner all the way up to like these are pros and everyone even you know disregarding their skill level was you could tell really put some time and effort into their cosplay and I really appreciated that as a uh, part-time cosplayer myself so I really appreciated that. I also got to attend a, a couple panels for some of my favorite uh, Bat Book affiliated uh, creators. I got to sit in on a panel with Greg Capullo. His, uh, his artist spotlight was really cool. Got to kind of pick his brain. And then also I got to sit in on a panel with Tom King. Tom King who is um, just killing it over at DC right now, even though he is one of, I would say, one of the most polarizing writers in comics, in all of comics, not just in DC, but I got to sit in his panel and really kind of pick his brain on the stuff that he's going through right now. Um, also got to get some kind of inside uh, peeks at the upcoming issues of Heroes in Crisis. He was he was trying his best not to be spoilery. He's being as vague as possible, but we did get a couple hints that I kind of appreciated. Uh, next issue is going to be uh, pretty big, so I'm excited about it. And I actually got to meet uh, Tom King following the panel. He signed my copy of uh, Mr. Miracle, which I loved, and uh, we got to chat for just a just like 30 seconds maybe about Omega Men which was one of my favorite comics of all time and the first comic that I read that was written by him so that was really cool got to you know bounce ideas and stuff off of each other that was really cool um and I am still on the hunt for uh, getting him on the podcast. So I will continue to uh, campaign for that. I will continue to uh, let you guys know the progress. So anyway, uh, that was my experience with WonderCon. Had a great time. Would love to go back next year. And I'm looking forward to hopefully going to maybe one or two more cons this year. It would be great. I went to uh, Monster Palooza for the first time last year, so that was fun. And uh, I want to say that's coming up pretty soon here, too. So I'll probably be attending that. Um, no cosplay or anything, just uh, observing as a fan. And uh, I definitely won't be going to San Diego because the, the tickets are way too expensive for me. So I will have to live vicariously through those of you who are going to San Diego. Um, but yeah, I'd love to maybe hit up uh, Long Beach Comic Con um possibly la comic-con kamikaze would be cool but we'll see the the whole con experience reignited my love for those kind of uh conventions so i'm i'm kind of still in con mode but uh other news batman officially this past saturday march 30th turned 80 80 years old um it was pretty cool uh dc universe again they put up i they basically made all of their Batman films uh, free to view for that Saturday, regardless of whether you had a membership or not. So I thought that was a real classy move by them. That was really cool. And I celebrated uh, Batman turning 80 by watching Mask of the Phantasm. So I, I love that film. I'm a big fan of that film. So I really got to uh, kind of sit down and have a quiet uh, Batman-filled day. 
Um, in other news, also pertaining to DC, uh, Felicity, a longtime mainstay on Arrow, the actress uh, Emily Bet Rickett, I believe is her name, officially announced that she will not be returning after season seven. Uh, season seven is going to be her last season, and she won't be returning for season eight. So this was kind of surprising. Um, I'm a little sad that they released the news of this prior to any kind of big... Uh, story twists or changes for her in the actual show uh, this has kind of been a trend in the last few years which bums me out because it kind of takes away the narrative potential and the uh, the surprise out of something happening to a character just knowing that hey that actress is leaving because they've either um worn out their contract or they got cast somewhere else and i understand that the show's ending next season but i really would have liked if she wasn't going to come back for them to kind of hold that as a surprise until it happened in the show but yeah it big news uh arrow seems to be really kind of we really seem to be hitting the end game of arrow and i am sad it's bittersweet but uh, yeah, it's it is for all intents and purposes, you know, we are hitting the end game for the original, the uh, the godfather of the Arrowverse. And speaking of Endgame, if you couldn't tell from my awful uh, segue skills, uh, Endgame dropped a sneak peek. Uh, it's blown up of course because it did i held off for as long as i could because i knew i knew that it was gonna have some spoilery stuff in it but i couldn't help myself i watched it and a couple things i was kind of surprised about um they are trying their best to not show any spoilers but there was a couple scenes there's one scene in particular and if you watch it you'll know what i'm talking about there's one scene in particular that i thought they should have they shouldn't have shown they really shouldn't have shown but um people are saying that you know with the whole three hour runtime all the trailers so far have been just from the the first 15 minutes of the film which is crazy to me and um if they're able to show this much of the film and still have enough to uh consider consider audiences who watch this to be unspoiled i will be incredibly impressed so yeah uh that is pretty much it for news newsworthy stuff um, I did want to touch on this. A friend of mine asked me for my thoughts, and I thought about making this an entire episode, but I just figured I'd do it here, I'd get it out of my system, and that is, of course, the comments made recently by Zack Snyder. Um, for those of you who don't know, Zack Snyder held an event uh I want to say like a week, maybe a week and a half ago, where uh, during a kind of Q&A, uh, Zack Snyder basically said that the reality is that Batman kills people. And if you don't think that, his words, if you don't think that, you're living in a fucking dreamland. And I, uh, I have so many problems with that. I really, I really do. It bothers me. It bothers me because I like Zack Snyder as a filmmaker. Some of uh, his films are some of my 
Guilty Pleasures, Sucker Punch, is a guilty pleasure film of mine. It is not a good film. It is gorgeous to look at, and I love watching it. Um, Watchmen is one of my favorite comic book movies. It's fantastic. It's what really, I think informed a lot of not just the dc universe but a lot of superhero movies in general post the release of that film um i was i am still a huge fan of man of steel and to a lesser extent uh batman v superman but his comment that batman kills people and that if you don't believe that then you're basically lying to yourself really really bothers me and it really struck a chord with me and i almost put up uh geeksplain extra just to rant and rage at his comments as i've seen a lot of people doing a lot of people were up in arms both either uh in support of him or in opposition to him i fall into the latter category i disagree to a huge extent um as you know i am a huge dc fan dc is my my base is where i started is my bread and butter and when you tell me that there is a fundamental contradiction to a character who just turned 80 years old um has been in publication for better or for worse for 80 years you tell me that a fundamental piece of that character is an inherent lie really really grinds my gears um it bothers me because the whole idea that batman doesn't kill is so ingrained into his character it is a it is a tenant of his whole belief system his whole belief system is built around the idea that he doesn't kill because crossing that line makes him just as bad as the criminals that he puts away just as bad as the psychopaths that try to take over gotham city or destroy it and just as bad as the man who killed his parents in the in crime alley when he was eight years old telling me that he is okay with killing and not just okay with killing but kills on a regular basis is so tone deaf and so against this character that there's a part of me that is okay with Zack snyder not being in charge of batman anymore um i was one of the supporters for batfleck i liked his rendition in batman v superman even though there were some questionable moments with him that fight in the warehouse he definitely killed like one or two people um but i liked this more physical uh comic to a certain extent comic accurate version of batman and Zack snyder really seemed to have a peg on him but with all the stuff that happened in justice league and the fact that he's not that ben affleck is no longer batman i am okay i've made my peace with Zack snyder not being a dominant force in the dc uh cinematic uh universe whether that's the dceu whether that's worlds of dc or whatever and that makes me personally even more excited for matt reeves's version of batman we know that it's going to be a 
detective noir style story it's going to be a bigger focus on the detective skills and i am just i'm really hoping that we get a a batman that's more in line with the morals that he's really always had and it frustrates me as someone who has been a fan of batman for so long that someone who has the opportunity to tell these stories um, chooses to ignore basic tenets of the character. It's frustrating, it's upsetting, um, it's... Uh, I don't know. And I'm trying to think back to the... Uh, the conversation that I was having with my friend and he brought up some interesting points on the uh, you know Snyder has a certain idea where he is uh, it's it's interesting to me because he brought up the uh, the Grim Knight my friend did and he said that Batman who kills is starting to become commonplace and I absolutely agree. It's starting to become commonplace, and it's starting to... It's frustrating, because the Grim Knight is set up as a character who is a villain, who is one of the worst uh, versions of Batman that there can be, basically turning him into Bat-Punisher. And it boggles the mind that that's the version of the character that someone like Zack Snyder would agree with and all of the people who are supporting this version of Zack Snyder would agree with and I don't ah I don't think that Batman should be a killer if you do that's fine you're wrong but it's fine you know I I don't think that something that is at the core of his character should be tampered with just because you disagree with the idea of someone fighting criminals without outwardly trying to kill them and i know i keep saying you like i'm like attacking you the listener um i want to reiterate i'm so thankful for you listening thank you very much continue to listen please we've got a long show after this but i just ah zach snyder it's frustrating it's frustrating because not killing people is a is a pillar of batman's belief system it's something that makes his stories interesting something that pushes his narrative further because it would be incredibly easy for him to go rogue for him to bring this up again turn it into a punisher style vigilante but when you read a punisher book you watch him kill people you watch him shoot people and it doesn't mean anything it doesn't mean anything because that's just what he does that's you know, it's as easy for him to do that as it is for, you know, the Flash to run really fast. And for Batman, the eternal struggle is knowing that the easy way out is to kill all these villains who are psychotic and who keep coming back and who keep making people suffer. But the stronger thing to do, the thing that will reflect on you years from now, on your legacy, is this honor this code that he will not kill and that makes his stories interesting because it's like how far will people try to push him until he kills someone we don't know where that line is for him he's talked about it before he's talked about 
how easy it would be to cross the line, how e how hard it would be to go back, how you can never go back after that. And I think you take away a lot of his narrative intrigue when you just allow him to start killing people. And that goes against the tenets of the superheroes in his universe. Um We've seen the alternate reality stories of Batman going crazy and killing people and the Justice League having to come in and stop him. Like, I get that that's an interesting story, but it's not who Batman is. And there's a reason that these are alternate reality stories. And while I'm sure a lot of people who are fans of um, Zack Snyder's version of the Justice League and a, you know, bullet-shooting death count batman um would find it real interesting to just have batman go in and kill people that's not him and if that's the kind of character that you're a fan of then i don't know if you're really that much of a batman fan it's okay to be a fan of certain aspects of the character it's okay to be a fan of alternate versions of the character i love the thomas wayne batman he's fantastic he's a really compelling character but he's not batman and he's there's a reason that he doesn't work in the mainline dc universe there's a reason that he is part of the worst case scenario timeline and there's a reason that in all of these awful uh alternate reality stories where everything goes wrong it typically has a version of batman who kills people because that is something that is so inherently wrong for his character that making that a part of him ruins the entire um the entire system that he's built upon and the entire system of moral and ethics that he has held himself to for 80 years so um yeah it's just that's that's my piece on it um if you want i can go more in depth on that i feel like i've pretty much articulated mostly what i uh i feel about it i just don't think that uh he was correct i think if he, if that's the way he feels and he feels that if you think that batman doesn't kill you're living in a fucking dreamland then i'm living in a fucking dreamland man i will stay sleeping until i you know expire because my batman does not kill my batman chooses not to kill and my batman is above killing because he knows that crossing that line makes him just as bad as the villains that he fights huh <sighs> okay so that is my piece on that um we are already over 25 minutes into this and i've just been ranting for what feels like the last 10 probably so um with all of that said we're gonna jump into the uh main part of this episode which is the comics catch-up for shazam um and by the way as a quick side note shazam would not kill either so just get that out of your your head right now but uh, yeah, so these are five books that I think you should read if you're interested in Shazam's character and whether you listen to this before you watch the film, whether you listen to this after you watch the film, um, 
If you are interested in learning more about the character, what he represents, kind of his world when it comes to the comics, these are five books that I think you should definitely check out. I'll be giving you the title, the creative team, a brief synopsis, and why I think it's a good fit and why I think it ranks. Uh, these are ranked from five to one. I have them from, you know, my least recommended to my most recommended and that doesn't mean that any of these are bad these are my top five shazam has been around also known as captain marvel uh for i think at least 80 years himself uh if not very close to that so um he has a lot of stories but these are the five that i think really encompass his character and really encompass what he can bring to the comics landscape today so uh jumping into our list at number five i have shazam this is the current run uh written by jeff johns with art by dale eaglesham this debuted at the beginning of december of last year it is currently at issue five i want to say um I'll jump into the synopsis, then I'll tell you what I think. Teenager-turned-superhero Billy Batson struggles to balance school and superheroics. Guess which one is more fun? But when Shazam unlocks a shocking secret deep within the Rock of Eternity, it challenges everything he knows about the worlds of magic and his family's future as its champions. Shazam and the Seven Realms starts here. So yeah, this is the most recent run of the comic. Uh, Shazam hasn't had a solo book in, I want to say, like over, if not over, then basically 10 years. So um, yeah, this is a big deal. Of course, this was kind of put together to help with, uh, to kind of piggyback off of the release of the film, but this was also released at the end of last year. So, you know, semantics but this book is uh fun and you're gonna hear that word a lot when it comes to shazam and the books that i'm uh recommending uh because shazam as a character captain marvel as a character the original captain marvel um is a fun character he's inherently a fun character he's a kid who after saying shazam turns into adult turns into an adult but still retains his childlike personality so this book is also uh, focused, at least so far it has been, on the Marvel family. That is, the other four orphans that live in the uh, foster home that Billy Batson lives in. And at a certain point throughout uh, Captain Marvel Shazam's history, uh, each one of them has also been gifted with the powers of Shazam. Whether we're talking about Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Marvel, and the whole gang. So they all feature in this book, which I think is great because they're all going to be featuring in the film as well. Uh, this book is also going to be probably the most influenced by the current film. So if you're a, a big fan of the film, uh, if you're a big fan of that version of shazam this is probably a good book for you to jump into it's monthly so you don't have to commit to it too much but it is ongoing as well so you can jump in uh it's only five issues in you can jump in and you can start reading right now so what i also really enjoy is that what it talks about the title being shazam and the seven realms um it's basically an exploration of the mythos behind shazam's abilities behind all of the magical realms and it looks like they've been you know traveling to each of these uh to varying degrees of success um 
But this is a fun book. This is a book that you can jump in. This is a book that uh, doesn't take a whole lot of knowing what Shazam is about to jump into it. So it's a great entry point for new readers as well. So that is my number five. At number four, we have Multiversity from 2014, specifically issue number five, which is Thunderworld Adventures, written by Grant Morrison with art by Cameron Stewart. Here is the synopsis. A breathtaking journey to Earth-5, a.k.a. Thunderworld. With a single word, Billy Batson transforms from boy reporter for Wiz Media into the world's mightiest mortal, Captain Marvel. Along with the other members of the Marvel family, Captain Marvel battles dastardly villains and saves the day. But now, Dr. Savannah has attacked the Rock of Eternity, and it could mean the end of reality as we know it. So this was uh, one of the uh, issues of the big multiversity book that Grant Morrison did, exploring the outer reaches of the multiverse. Um, issue 5 is specifically what I'm referencing here, though the entire multiversity book is definitely worth your time, especially because we're starting to see a lot of those elements bleed into uh, the main DC universe right now. So that's... A must read I think it's a book that I think you can get a lot of enjoyment out of each issue checks into a different world and this issue checks into the world of Shazam also known as Earth 5 I think it was established during uh, crisis on infinite earths or infinite crisis that Shazam and the entire Marvel family originally uh, comes from Earth 5 so this is your bread and butter this is your classic captain marvel back from his original days in Fawcett city all the stuff that comes with that original run those kind of mannerisms uh but what i also like is that it's a one shot it's a self-contained story you don't need to know anything about shazam going into it it helps if you have been reading the other issues of multiversity and uh, it settles really nicely into the overarching story of the Multiversity book, but you don't need to know a whole lot going into the book, which I like. Uh, this is also Grant Morrison writing Shazam, and I never thought that I would like that prior to reading this, because Shazam, like I said, is so fun and energetic and lively, and Grant Morrison is not. Just simply put, he is not. Uh, Grant Morrison is big on ideas. He's got a lot to say. He's got a lot of uh, uh, he's got a lot of thoughts. He's got a lot of feelings, and I can appreciate that in certain respects. Um, I love his All Star Superman. Um, I love his Batman Incorporated. I love his takes on certain characters, but. Um, I did not think this was going to work, but it does. He knows how to tap into those uh, old school 40s and 50s uh, kind of sensibilities that Captain Marvel had at that point. You do get a real old school feel, and I think that has a lot to do with the art. Cameron Stewart's art just pops in this issue, and it really makes the world feel lived in this it makes it feel like this is just another issue in the life like this is like issue 15 out of a 35 issue run you really feel like these you attach yourself to these characters they're fun you get to learn basically the entire supporting cast in very short time and you i think become really invested in the story 
Uh, this also has multiversal implications. The story does involve Dr. Savannah, who is the main villain for Captain Marvel Shazam, um, encountering other members of uh, the Savannahverse, of the uh, many different versions of Dr. Savannah across the multiverse. And pretty much every issue kind of ends of multiverse ends with the inhabitants of that earth growing uh uh growing aware of other earths in the multiverse so this is definitely worth your time i really like it because it's a short sweet simple to the point story for shazam uh, at number three, we have Monster Society of Evil from 2007, written and drawn by Jeff Smith. Here's the synopsis. When Billy Batson follows a stranger onto the subway, he never imagines he's entering a strange world of powerful wizards, talking tigers, kid-eating monsters, political intrigue, and mysterious villains. But Billy encounters all that and more when the wizard gives him a magic word that transforms him into the world's mightiest mortal. Now he must use his extraordinary new abilities to face an incoming invasion of alien creatures and to stop mad scientist Dr. Savannah and his monster society of evil from taking over the world. So yeah, that's a lot. Um, this is an origin story for Billy Batson. Um really detailing his uh his coming into the power meeting the wizard encountering savannah for the first time and what i like about this is this is kind of an all ages story uh the art is very cartoony it makes it feel like it's part of a uh, saturday morning cartoon block uh the art's fun the writing can sometimes drift into saturday morning cartoon kind of cheese but that works with Shazam. Um, this also is kind of a modern, updated origin of Billy. Billy Batson is typically an orphan, whether he's living in a halfway home, whether he's living in an orphanage. This takes a more, I would say, almost Harry Potter approach, where he's kind of squatting in this abandoned building and he's bullied by another homeless person who, quote unquote, owns the block. So you have that, you know. Um, orphan with a greater destiny kind of stumbles onto magic and it changes his life forever so i really i really enjoyed it i read it again today and it's just it's fun it's a fun book it's not highbrow uh like you would expect from like a grant grant morrison this is a fun simple story that's great for all ages if you uh, happen to have kids or if you're a younger reader yourself uh, this is a great book to just jump into that really any age can appreciate whether it's the art whether it's the writing whether it's the overall story i think this is a good fit for an all ages appeal um, and it's a fun story it tackles all of the kind of bullet points of captain marvel's origin um meeting shazam dealing with uh savannah we even get a little bit of takitani and we do get the uh, first appearance of mr mind as well as uh billy's younger sister mary so definitely check this out if you're looking for more of a uh, fun kind of saturday morning cartoon version of the origin of captain marvel 
Number two, I have Convergence from 2015, uh, written by Jeff Parker with art by Doc Shaner. This is a, uh, specifically, this isn't the entire Convergence event. Feel free to read that. But for me, when I read the Convergence event, I had more fun with the tie-ins. And the tie-ins, I'll give you a little background on Convergence. Convergence uh, happened during the New 52, and this being called Telos created essentially Battleworld from Marvel Comics and took all of the alternate uh, worlds, one city from each alternate Earth, and placed them on this battle world. Um, it's not called Battle World, but I'm going to continue to use that because it's that's just what it is. Um, and every city on Battle World was basically pitted against each other. Uh, so this city will be pitted against this city. We had like uh, Earth 2 classic, like Justice Society Earth against Earth the red sun earth um and all of them all of the tie-ins there's a you know over a dozen tie-ins um of just these clashes between these earths and basically telos told the entire battle world he was like your your city is going to face an enemy city and whichever city wins you will continue on and your essentially with the uh, promise that they'll be returned to their earth and kind of hinting towards the reader that that earth is going to be coming back into main continuity so possibly my favorite tie-in out of all of them okay it, it was a tie between these two uh, my first one was superman convergence superman and then convergence shazam so those two were the best tie-ins for my money, out of all of the tie-ins for Convergence, if you want to read the full Convergence book, feel free. Not necessary for this specifically. Um, and this, each tie-in got two issues, basically, to start the conflict and end the conflict. Uh, the Superman one, I think, is probably the most important out of all of them because it had implications going forward into the New 52, into the final days of Superman, and into Rebirth as we stand today. Uh, but this one was fun because... It's pure, classic Captain Marvel. I'll jump into the synopsis here. The shining city of Fawcett takes on the murky, gaslit world of Gotham City, as Captain Marvel finds the Victorian-era Batman prepared to take on the mightiest of mortals. At the heart of the battle, a new alliance of villains comes together to destroy the future, and one world will be sent to oblivion. So the big thing I like about this is there's a culture clash when it comes to this. So as you can tell from the synopsis, the world that the classic Earth-5 uh, Shazam is fighting is Gotham by Gaslight. Gotham by Gaslight is an incredible Batman alternate uh, Elseworlds story. They actually turned it into an animated film recently, which is a great film, a fantastic film. Um, I would say pretty much on par, if not for me, slightly better than the original comic. And to have classic, you know, golly, you know, gee whiz kind of uh, Captain Marvel going up against the grim, gritty Victorian era Gotham by Gaslight Batman is really cool. You, It's so cool. Um, the battle really doesn't get started between the two until the second issue the first issue is mostly about um 
Billy Batson and his supporting cast dealing with being on Battleworld and the dome that took them from their world to this new one. Um, but in that issue, in that first issue, you get classic Captain Marvel. And it's it's just it's pure big red cheese. They are dealing with everything that's going on there. They have those sensibilities. Um, it's just, it's so fun. And part of that is Doc Shaner's art. Doc Shaner is one of my favorite artists, bar none, period. Because he evokes just a, a bygone time with his art. It's very classic looking for those of you who uh, have have picked up or are interested in uh, the original Hanna-Barbera uh, cartoons, Johnny Quest, Space Ghost, those kind of things. He recently did a book called Future Quest, which kind of brought all of those Hanna-Barbera characters together on a mission. And I really enjoy his art. It's always incredible just watching him draw. And he has admitted to wanting to do a Shazam book. So this is me casting my vote for all that it's worth um, towards that because I think Doc Shaner is an incredible artist and his art style fits so well with Shazam and Captain Marvel's world. Um, this also, again, just like the uh, Multiversity book has uh, multiverse implications uh, with the whole Convergence event. There wasn't a whole lot that actually came out of it. There were some very important things. Let's see convergence superman tie-ins but um overall uh this really showed what can be gained from turning the dceu in their cinematic universe into the worlds of dc really leaning into the multiverse uh the cw flash show has done this i think to a really positive effect um, it's deepened certain characters. It's allowed for a lot more uh, narrative potential for these stories. And I think this is a good indication of that as well. Um, but most of all, the story is just simple and fun. Um, if you take out the uh, overarching multiversal battles, this is just a great story, especially the first issue is very self-contained um, within Billy Batson's world. This is classic, you know, whiz media, uh, Billy Batson, and it's just a look back into like a bygone era on Captain Marvel that we may not see again. Uh, the current Captain Marvel run, or I should say the current Shazam run, is very much a modern day take. And for me, for my money, I would love a book, even if it's just like a limited series, um, to really go back and dive into that era for Shazam and for Captain Marvel and for that whole uh, supporting cast and those villains. So if you want to peek into what Captain Marvel used to be alongside a look at what it would be like clashing that with the dark, gritty realities of Batman Gotham by Gaslight, definitely pick this book up. But for my money, at number one, the best book of Shazam, Captain Marvel, whatever, uh, you should pick up is Superman Shazam First Thunder from 2006. Written by Judd Winnick, with art by Joshua Middleton. Here's the synopsis. Witness the first meeting of the last son of Krypton and Earth's mightiest mortal. 
while Superman must stop members of a cult from stealing an ancient artifact from the Metropolis Natural History Museum, Captain Marvel must defeat giant robots rampaging through Fawcett City. So for me, uh, this also, again, um, might be a, uh, a biased choice because this was my first Shazam comic. This was the first comic that I ever read that featured Shazam slash Captain Marvel. Um, and it's near and dear to my heart. Uh, and part of that is because this is a uh, Superman Shazam story. I love stories that put them together because they're so similar and yet so, 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 so different. This is featuring their first encounters with each other. Um, at this point, what I really like is this is also almost like a, a flashback prequel issue or a prequel story because this takes place uh, pretty early on in the DC universe. Batman is still just a rumor. He's only been uh, at the crime fighting game for a year at this point. Uh, the Justice League hasn't really formed yet. Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, Diana Prince, they haven't really shown up yet. And Superman has only been on the job for, I want to say, around like six months or so. So everyone is still relatively new to this. Everyone's still relatively new to the idea of superheroes. And especially the idea of superheroes working together. Uh, this also does a really great job at highlighting the contrast between Billy Batson and Clark Kent. Um, again, I it might be biased because this is featuring uh, Shazam alongside quite possibly my favorite superhero. Um, but I think this is a really good story that features both of them equally. Uh, you see two people who are still trying to figure their way through this superheroics thing. Uh, Clark Kent is really shy at the uh, and really nervous at the idea of sharing personal information about himself there's a moment where he and uh captain marvel are kind of talking to each other and he's just like oh never mind i should have said that i don't really tell people about me and i think it's so good seeing a superman who's still trying to figure things out and at the same time they're both living very different lives uh billy is homeless in this iteration he's living in the subway um, he has a friend that comes and visits him from a neighboring orphanage, and Clark is still working his way through uh, kind of the ranks at the Daily Planet. There's very little uh, interaction between him and Lois. That's still kind of a uh, burgeoning thing, but this is the purest forms of these characters. Uh, this is also a great story talking about the price of being a superhero. Uh, as the story goes on, especially in the very last issue, you really get to see the kind of emotional toll it takes on someone, especially when that someone is a 10-year-old boy having to take on the responsibilities of being the world's mightiest mortal. And how Superman reacts to this, um, mind you, at the outset of the story, he thinks that Shazam is just like him and also sees him as an adult. And so... Uh, they do tackle the idea of Superman finding out about his secret, but for me, this is the birth of a friendship, and I love stories like this, where two heroes come together, meet for the first time, and it always ends with a, if you need me, I'll be around kind of thing, and I love stories that go that way. So I'm a big fan of that. I really enjoy that in my stories, um, and I also really enjoy getting 
uh, origins and entry points like this. Um, at this point, like I said, both of them are uh, a little ways into their careers, but at that same time, they're still also figuring things out. They're still pretty new to this superhero game, so they are trying to kind of make it up as they go. Uh, they do have reputations in their respective cities, but they're also still learning, and they're very human in this uh, in this story, which I like. But for me, this is also a great entry point for readers, because you don't have to know a whole lot about these characters. It introduces you to them, tells you their basic deal, and just lets you have fun and live in their world. So for me, for my money, that is the best Shazam comic. Uh, to recap, at number five, we have Shazam, the current run that started in 2018. Uh, number four, we have Multiversity from 2014, specifically issue five, Thunderworld Adventures. Uh, at number three, we have Shazam and the Monster Society of Evil from 2007 that actually just got a re-release uh, in February, so you can pick up a uh, new and improved new edition of that for number two it is convergence shazam the two tie-in issues to the overarching uh convergence event and number one is superman shazam first thunder so uh yeah that's it for the list um if you are a shazam fan if you have uh read these books let me know what you think of these books let me know um if you have a favorite book, if you think I'm way off base, if you think that uh, there are books that deserve to be on the list, let me know. I would love to have that conversation with you all. Um, I love having conversations about stuff like this, especially when it's you know stuff that new readers are trying to get into or old readers just wanting to kind of share their experience and expertise with the characters. So yeah, feel free to let me know. Uh, on uh, Twitter or Instagram, because we have an Instagram now. Go check us out at Geeksplained Pod. That's at Geeksplained P O D, both on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, you can also reach me through email because I'm an old man. I still read emails to uh, Geeksplained at gmail.com. It's probably not going to be the last time you hear that, but uh, gotta plug the social media, brother. So uh, yeah, that's going to be it for the main part of this episode. Uh, stay tuned. We've got a lot in store. The episode is not over yet. We've got the weekly review, this week's comics countdown, as well as the continuation of our MCU rankings, our non-official MCU rankings. Uh, we have gotten up to number 14 this week. We'll be doing 14, 13, and 12. So stay tuned after the jump for all of that. But for now, let's kick it on over to the Weekly Review. And it is now time for this week's Weekly Review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And of course, the first focus in our Weekly Review series is the live-action Doom Patrol show found on the DC Universe uh, service, streaming app, all that stuff. Uh, we are Week 7, Episode 7. This episode is titled Therapy Patrol. And there is a lot that happens in this episode. This is kind of a... Uh, 
what I think is interesting, it's there's a term for it. It's called a bottle episode, where not a whole lot actually happens to move the narrative forward, but it's a lot of uh, character growth. And this is one of those episodes where you don't necessarily need to watch it for the overarching story, but it's great because it gives a lot of uh, emotional depth to the characters in the cast. And what I really like about this episode is it's uh, it's POV driven, it's point of view driven. So every the episode you experience in kind of a uh, a fragmented narrative where you see the events of the day through one character's eyes and then once they kind of come up to uh, right to the point that everyone's stories kind of converge it flips over to uh, another character starting the day over and you get to see how their day went through so it's really interesting there's not a whole lot that actually like again happens but I really I really enjoy it because I'm I'm kind of a person that enjoys character over plot, and if you serve me good characters, I don't necessarily need a fully focused narrative going forward. Um, but yeah, this is really good. First, uh, I'm going to have these kind of out of order, but I wanted to touch on everyone's stories individually, and the one that was most interesting to me was uh, Larry's, Larry Trainer. The negative man, he gets a lot of screen time in this episode, and I've been kind of waiting for a Larry-focused episode, and I'm sure another one's coming, but I really like this because it delves deeper into the struggle that he has with the negative spirit throughout this entire season. He's kind of been battling back and forth with the negative spirit that resides inside of him, and it's really interesting because we finally get to see what happens to Larry when the negative spirit leaves his body. He essentially goes into a uh, kind of like a fever dream. He goes back into his memories. He starts reliving them. And in this one, the negative spirit is kind of like trying to tell him something. He's trying to give him a lesson. And I have this sneaking suspicion that the negative spirit is going to end up being his, uh, his lover from back when he was a normal person, a pilot, because the spirit keeps trying to, it keeps showing him memories of the two of them together, and we don't really know what happened to him specifically. We know uh, Larry's wife and kids he kind of sent away and cut all ties with after the accident, but uh, his, quote-unquote, his lover kind of uh, stuck around. So we're not sure exactly what happened to him, but I'm interested to see where that goes. And it would be a departure making him the uh, the negative spirit with Larry, but I think it'd be an interesting kind of uh, um, recontextualization of that relationship because their whole story throughout this entire season is trying to figure out what the relationship is and how they can work together to reach both of their goals. But yeah, I really liked it. I thought his... Uh, his kind of melancholy is pretty uh, pretty in line with how he's been throughout the entire season. But now we're starting to get more uh, depth with it, which I liked. Also, uh, we had <laughs> we had quite a day for Rita Farr. Rita had a rough day where she couldn't really keep herself together. She uh, fell through a uh, vent through the floor because she can't really keep her. Uh, her human form together she was in a furnace she had to uh crawl her way up the stairs out of the basement and it was it was a rough time 
Farida. So I really enjoyed it. Um, we also got a look back at uh, Rita's kind of the beginning of this Rita Farr uh, facade that she has where she's meeting this other actress when she's like a little girl and her parents are very almost like dance mom like level where they're like oh no don't introduce yourself as yourself introduce yourself as your stage name and like you can tell that she's got a lot of issues even before the accident happened so I really liked that kind of spotlight on her. She has been kind of the sleeper hit when it comes to these characters, I think. Uh, she's the one that I didn't really connect to all that much in the first episode, but every episode that goes by, you just get more and more engrossed in her story and her growth as a character, so I really enjoy it. Uh, we also got to see a wacky kind of uh, story for Cliff this episode. He started hallucinating. Uh, seeing Vic and others as his uh, his old pal Bumper, who is was revealed uh, last episode, is the adoptive dad of his daughter. So there's a lot of issues there, um, and his kind of interactions with Vic and all of his hallucinations. And then you find out at the very end that he's the reason he was having these hallucinations was because a uh, a vengeful rat named. Uh, I think it was General Whiskers or Admiral Whiskers or something like that, uh, was angry about them squishing his mother in the first episode, unknowing to them, and uh, jumped into the little hole in his arm that was created when uh, Cyborg's hand cannon blew up. Our neighbor's dog is a, a big fan of Robot Man and the Doom Patrol. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was really interesting that... Uh, this whole thing kind of wrapped around the the, uh, the interference of this small rat. So I don't know if they're gonna move forward with that in the uh, in the narrative in the next episode, but I guess we'll see. Uh, we also got a really compelling story with uh, with Cyborg with Vic. Um, I was really interested this episode with his story. Um, the last episode, Silas kind of gave him you know full reign to just be himself and uh following that vic you know shut off all of his uh kind of parental controls for lack of a better term and uh, got full autonomy of grid his kind of ai companion and we start to see the seeds of grid almost being a little uh malevolent because uh Cyborg starts going through this dating app, and when he's, you know, interacting with this girl that he matched with, Grid is suddenly showing all of these, like, uh, not security, but, like, um, I don't know, the it's like the CCTV feeds of, like, his date, and Cyborg's like, I didn't ask you to put this up, and Grid's like, not verbally, but your, you know, your, uh, your thoughts designated otherwise and it's like we know where the story goes in the comics when it comes to grid and i'm interested to see if they start to battle with each other for control of cyborg and his autonomy as the season goes by so i thought that was really cool and then we also get a peek into jane's mind which i really liked we saw the conversation with herself with them arguing about going to the meeting about um really just being part of this team i thought it was i thought it was interesting i'm really intrigued with jade's character and her growth as we go on and all of them really got to shine in this episode again this is an episode that 
I guess in some ways could be considered a filler episode, but I thought for the uh, for the growth of these characters as they move forward into kind of the final act of the season, I thought it was a great little pit stop. I thought it was really nice, um, and I think it's just as important as the other episodes. So I... I really liked it. I think you should definitely check this episode out, especially with how heavy uh, last episode with the original Doom Patrol got. This is a nice kind of... Uh, it's v- much more humorous than uh, than last week's episode, which I, of course, adore. And their, their weird, quirky humor is something that is a real strength when it comes to Doom Patrol. And they touched on that when we uh, went to the DC Universe panel uh, at WonderCon. So I definitely give this episode a thumbs up. Check back next week for uh, this Friday's episode. This Friday's episode is entitled Danny Patrol, which I'm really excited because if you are a longtime Doom Patrol fan or you checked out our episode on the Doom Patrol, if you haven't checked that out, check it out. It's a pretty good episode. We're, we might be getting Danny the Street. And I love that character. I think he's such a cool, weird character, and he fits right in with the tone of the show. Um, one thing I didn't really touch on during the uh, the kind of coverage of WonderCon is that the uh, showrunner confirmed that Danny of the Street is coming, or Danny the Street is coming, and we're also going to be getting Flex Mentallo. And Flex Mentallo is such a weird character. Um, I would love to do an episode about Flex Mentallo, so if you're interested in that, feel free to let me know on Twitter and Instagram. So I, uh, I'm i really excited. Uh, definitely check back next week for our next episode in the weekly review, but for now, let's turn it on over to this week's Comics Countdown. And welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I tell you about the comics that I'm picking up for this week's new comic book day and the comics that I think you should be picking up too. Uh, Typically five comics, sometimes more, sometimes less. I'm going to be giving you the title, the creative team, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, each synopsis is going to be accompanied by a synopsis voice. If you have a synopsis voice you'd like to uh, request, feel free to send those requests to uh twitter or instagram at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained p-o-d or through email because i'm an old man i read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com this week we have four books four books that i think are the cream of the crop and i think you should be checking out this week uh we've got a few new number ones this week but these are the ones that i think you should definitely uh put your time into First up, we have Captain America number nine, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, with art by Adam Hubert. Uh, this is continuing on the uh, strange, I would say, uh, political thriller saga that Ta-Nehisi Coates has been doing with Cap. Uh, Basically, he has been framed for the death of General Thunderbolt Ross, and now he is having to deal with everything that comes with that, being hunted by the government, all that stuff. So uh, let's jump into the synopsis here. 
Captain of Nothing continues. No costume, no shield, trapped behind bars with a thousand villains and killers who'd like nothing more than to see him dead. Steve Rogers fights back, and he can do it all day. So yeah, um, this is, you know, the classic uh, Captain America versus the government kind of story. But it's got a lot of political intrigue in it as well with the whole, you know, who killed Thunderbolt Ross? Why did they do this? Why did they frame Cap? And we also got uh, some interesting tidbits in the last issue. It teased the return of Hydra Cap, though the end of the issue kind of uh, implies that he may be off the board now. So I'm interested to see where they go next with this. If they do end up going back with that, or if they continue with uh, Celine kind of being the main antagonist. Another book that I'm really interested to see what goes on next is Uncanny X-Men number 15, written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Salvador La Roca. Uh, this is for me the best X book that's going on right now, out of all the dozens of x-books that are going on and adding on another one with uh mr x i think is what it's called or um general or captain x whatever that uh rob liefeld's going on with uh this is pound for pound the best x book that i think is going on right now uh we'll jump to the synopsis and then i'll kind of tell you my thoughts right after cyclops and the x-men have set out to save mutant kind but the Mutant Liberation Front isn't going to just wait for it to happen. Led by one of the X-Men's own, the MLF is willing to do whatever it takes to stop mutant oppression. Even kill any mutant who stands in their way. So yeah, this is continuing on the kind of uh, hit list story that's been building with Uncanny X-Men so far. Uh, the darker of the, uh, of the X-Books that are going on right now, especially with... Uh, Age of X-Man going on in the other X-Books. And I'm really interested, now that we've gotten all that news about uh, Jonathan Hickman and his uh, plans for the X-Men, where this is going to fall and what's going to happen to this team when the other X-Men come back from this alternate reality. But I've been really enjoying it. The art by Salvador LaRocca does take a little bit of getting used to. I know it did for me for the first few issues, but the writing has been solid. The storytelling is great, and I'm loving getting this kind of darker, almost Black Ops-style team for them. So it's it's been really good and a really good refresh of the, uh, of the X-Men myth. Those. Another great refresh that's going on right now is Young Justice, this week with Young Justice number four, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Patrick Gleason. Uh, this book is just fun. This has been a really, really fun book so far. Um, I'm a huge sucker for the original, you know, Young Justice trinity of uh, Robin, Superboy, and Impulse. So this has been really good. And with last issue's kind of... Uh, deep dive into Superboy's uh, backstory, kind of where he's been since, basically since the New 52 happened. Um, I'm really interested to see what more they do with him. They kind of introduced a wife and kid to him that he didn't have before, and we don't really know if his powers work out here So in Gemworld. So I'm interested to see where this goes, but let's jump into the synopsis. 
this all-new, in-continuity wonder comic sensation explodes as all the secrets of these heroes, Robin, Superboy, Wonder Girl, Ginny Hex, Teen Lantern, Amethyst, and Impulse are revealed. Young Justice forms once again, just in time to battle the Great Dark Opal and stop his plans for an invasion of Earth that could destroy humanity. It's a big, bold new chapter into the future future of the DC universe. Uh, this has been really good. Again, I know I said that already, but uh, the book's been really nice so far. The art by Patrick Gleason is, of course, fantastic because he is a incredible, he's an incredible artist. And uh, I was listening to the most recent episode of Word Balloon, which is another great podcast you should definitely be checking out. Um, and uh, the most recent episode was another edition of his Bendis Tapes, which is their kind of, uh, his conversations, uh, John Suntress, his conversations with Brian Michael Bendis, the writer of this series. And he said a lot of things that I think really gelled with me as a reader of Young Justice. He wanted that kind of fun, kind of incontinuity, but able to stand on its own kind of story with the voices of the younger heroes of the DC Universe. So I really enjoy it. I definitely think you should be picking this up. But the biggest book this week, and the biggest book, I think, of the summer, is going to be War of the Realms number one. Written by Jason Aaron with art by Russell Donnerman. Uh, this is it. We are kicking off the uh, big summer Marvel event officially with War of the Realms. It's been building and building and building since the pretty much the beginning of uh, Jason Aaron's run on uh, the Mighty Thor, if not all the way back to his run on God of Thunder. So I'm interested to see you know this climax of the jason aaron thor saga where this goes from here and how it affects the greater marvel universe let's jump into the synopsis here asgard alfheim heaven jotunheim muspelheim niflheim nidavellir svartalheim vanaheim all of the Ten Realms have fallen to Malekith and his army except one, Midgard. Home to Thor's beloved humans, home to heroes and gods alike. Now, at last, it burns, and Thor won't even be there to see it. All hell breaks loose in New York City as Malekith and his allies begin their invasion and the greatest heroes of the Marvel Universe watch as the Earth falls. So this is, this is it. This is the big culmination of Jason Aaron's run. Uh, a lot of stuff has been building towards this. We got a big preview of it in the big uh, Mighty Thor 700 where they teased this story and all the stuff that goes into it so i'm i'm really really excited for this i'm really excited for uh this book the i think the release schedule they have it uh twice a month bi-monthly so uh we're getting all six issues over the next uh two three months so this is this is the big one um and i mean that not just because it's a big uh, story implication, but also the insane amount of tie-in issues that are coming into this. Uh, there's like, there's there's too many. There's just too many. 
But uh, yeah, this is a big book. This is the book that if you are reading Marvel Comics, you need to be picking up because it's going to have massive implications, especially because Jason Aaron is kind of their rock star over at Marvel right now. He's got Thor. He's got the Avengers. This is going to be a big event, and there are going to be big ramifications for everyone inside of the Marvel Universe. So definitely pick this up, and definitely pick up all of the books that we have this week. To recap, we have Captain America number 9, Uncanny X-Men number 15, Young Justice number 4, and War of the Realms number 1. And that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. If you uh, think I missed any books, if there are any books you think I should definitely be picking up, feel free to let me know on Instagram or Twitter or through email as well. But for now, let's kick it on over to the continuation of our official rankings of the MCU. And last up for this week's episode, we are continuing our countdown, ranking every film in the MCU. So we have counted down so far, numbers 21 to 15, and we are going to be continuing that off with numbers 14, 13, and 12. These are the ones that are really, for me, we start to get into the like really, really good ones. Um, as you start to see, uh, some of this comes to my own personal opinion, and of course, as a uh, disclaimer, these are all, uh, of course, the placements are my opinion. They are subjective. If you disagree, feel free to let me know. I would love to have a conversation with you about it. But uh, yeah, this is my list. So, so far, I'll go ahead and recap our uh, current standings. At number 21, it was Thor The Dark World. Number 20 was The Incredible Hulk. Number 19 was Iron Man 2. Number 18 was Iron Man 3. Number 17 was Thor. Number 16 was Doctor Strange. And number 15 was Ant-Man and the Wasp. So we are, of course, counting down all the way to 1, from 21 to 1, worst to best. And I want to reiterate that even though it is counting from worst to best, none of these are objectively bad movies. Marvel, I don't think, when it comes to the MCU, has put out an outright bad film. Uh, some of them are weaker, some of them are stronger, and as we start to get into the uh, lower rankings here, uh, we are going to start to see a lot of strong films. And I think from here in we start to see some of the stronger films in the series and a couple of these might surprise you at their uh, their placements so we'll go ahead and kick this off with number 14 which is avengers age of ultron this i know is going to be a controversial pick being so far up for a lot of people this is their worst for a lot of people this is the worst of the mcu and i totally understand that it was a very different film from the first avengers film uh there was a lot of hype and a lot of uh, pressure kind of on the film to not only perform as well as the first Avengers movie, but almost to outdo it, to really kind of uh, 
build upon the foundation of the first movie and really kind of knock it out of the park to go into the next phase. And fortunately, this didn't really do it. So I've got my notes queued up here. And first off, talking about that title, Age of Ultron, we got to start it off with Ultron. Ultron, I have marked here and just as with the other films i have them marked as positives and negatives in my notes and uh ultron is one of those few in the notes that is both a positive and a negative i thought james spader as ultron brought a really good creep factor to him especially in kind of the first half of the film his whole scene where he kind of kills jarvis is still one of the most unnerving and really uh suspenseful scenes in the mcu and it's it's frightening and it really sets up ultron as like this is a threat this is something that is going to push the avengers further than they've ever gone but at that same point around i want to say like two-thirds into the film he kind of turns into what a lot of people have a problem with myself included when it comes to some of uh some of the MCU films is he becomes a villainous version of Tony Stark. He really becomes a dark reflection of Tony Stark and as we all know at this point the MCU really is Tony Stark's story. <laughs> um, and it's it's you know it's fine. I personally was a bigger fan of the comics origin of Ultron where he was strictly a creation of Hank Pym who in himself can easily fit into a villain role whether he wants to or not but uh they heavily uh messed with his origin making him essentially a the brainchild of both tony stark and bruce banner and throwing in a little bit of really uh dark one-liners and a total superiority complex which he totally didn't get from tony stark and really making him, I thought at first, a really compelling villain, but as it started to progress, um, he kind of became just this snarky one-liner uh, machine. And I know that it's... Uh, we weren't really to the point where we were getting solid MCU villains yet, and I thought that out of the, uh, the movies that kind of centered or kind of took place around this span of time we were getting a lot of weak villains this is coming off of uh the mandarin in iron man 3 uh, malekith in thor the dark world and it was at a time ronin from guardians of the galaxy and it was at a time that i don't think they really knew what they wanted to do with the villains they had comfortably kind of settled into our heroes are solid and that's really all we need to focus on and of course we found out that that's not exactly the case. That being said, I thought Ultron was at certain points a compelling villain. Him being this dark reflection of Tony Stark gave him a lot of room and gave James Spader a lot of room to really grow the character and make him different from his uh, his comics counterpart, which at times can be just you know a really boring, uh, charisma lacking machine where with james spader he had personality he uh made jokes which was nice but also when it came down to the more serious aspects of it i don't think he sold it quite as well so that's ultron uh, another positive the team dynamic uh 
The team dynamic I thought in this film was fantastic. One thing that Joss Whedon really knows how to do is to write team dialogue. How he can really craft a well-formed team, a well-oiled uh, machine, uh, pardon the pun, and he really does a great job, I think, in making everybody feel like they're actual friends. They're not just teammates. They know each other. They joke around with each other. They tease each other. The whole uh, language line from uh, Tony Stark after uh, Caps's language and everyone kind of harps on him really makes this feel like almost a family, a group of friends that are going through something harrowing but are still kind of mostly on the same page so i really like that the scenes in with the little uh the little party in avengers tower i thought was really nice getting everybody together the scene where everyone's trying to pick up thor's hammer i think is one of the best scenes in the entire film so i really enjoyed that another positive talking about uh team dynamics and stuff is might be a controversial opinion but i thought all of the the farm stuff worked for me personally all of hawkeye's family them staying on the farm all of the uh back and forth between cap and tony their whole deal where they're chopping wood that scene i thought really worked i also liked bringing in hawkeye's family it gave us a reason to care about him and his story and his struggles in the film um i also i just liked these quieter moments where they got to really assess like hey we kind of just got our ass kicked so let's regroup let's focus on what we need to do and move forward so i really enjoyed it another positive i thought were the two newest additions to the uh, avengers team that being wanda and pietro scarlet witch and quicksilver respectively uh i really liked them i personally i kind of liked this version of quicksilver more than the evan peters version and evan peters quicksilver is great he's kind of one note in that respect but i i enjoyed it but this quicksilver i thought there was a lot of narrative potential with and i thought he and Scarlet Witch, their whole dynamic of being twins, of at first being adversaries to the Avengers, just like the comics, and then later joining the Avengers, just like the comics, uh, really set them apart from the other team, uh, the other members on the team, because they were adversaries they fought each other and they came into this team now okay let's work together let's move forward and i liked that and i wish that we had gotten to see more of their dynamic within the avengers team because unfortunately of course quicksilver dies at the end of this film and i think it was a weird scapegoat to get around killing off one of the original six but it really uh it really caught me by surprise and caught a lot of people by surprise i think because they saw aaron taylor johnson who is who played quicksilver as this young guy plenty of charisma he had a fun character and he's somebody who can along with uh scarlet witch kind of bring a younger contingent into the team and him getting killed off i thought was just it was a good story beat for the moment, but I think there was a lot of wasted potential. And with all of these rumors that he might come back because of Endgame and all the stuff coming out of that, I kind of hope he does. 
I don't think that that's what's ultimately going to end up happening, but I kind of hope that he does come back and he's able to really kind of more explore what Pietro is all about, because in the comics, he's a very dynamic and complicated character, so I'm interested in really diving into him, and I hope that they kind of build off what he did here, which I, again, thought was really good. Uh, and then Scarlet Witch. Scarlet Witch was great, even though, you know, the uh, the accent from Elizabeth Olsen wasn't perfect, and so much so that as the movies progress, she just loses more and more of the accent to where Infinity War, most of her dialogue, the accent was very faint, if not non-existent. So I really liked her, and she has, I think, really brought a lot to the team. And I think that she, even though at times she's kind of uh, OP, which she should be, she's Scarlet Witch, um, I really like her dynamic on the team, and I really liked her journey through this film. So I liked them a lot. Going into negatives, uh, the final act was really kind of felt like a retread of the first Avengers film. It's the Avengers. It's six superheroes against an army of disposable villains. Uh, first Avengers film, it was the Shatari. Uh, second Avengers film, it was all of the Ultron copies. And I really wish they had done something else and made it a bit more personal, made it a bit more uh, visceral, because all those confrontations that they had with Ultron by himself, especially near the end, uh, the moment that he has with Vision at the very end, were very compelling, and I really enjoyed them. Whereas this was basically just, okay, let's just throw up some, you know, retread of the first film and kind of move that forward in that way, and I didn't really like that. Um, it was a good opportunity to display everyone's power sets, which, of course, th that's what it's built for. That sequence is kind of made for them to, let's just blow up all these things while we are just fighting this endless army of nameless, faceless uh, antagonists. So I wasn't really a fan of that. I wish they had gone for something a little bit more personal, like the fight against Thanos in Infinity War, where Thanos is just overpowering them on Titan, and I would have liked that, but with Ultron. Also, for me, as much as I applaud it for being something new and something different from the comics, I wasn't really a fan of the Hulk and Black Widow romance, um, and I know that I'm not alone in that, uh, in that opinion, but I just don't think it worked. I think that Joss Whedon really tried his best to make it make sense, but even with that, I don't, ah, I don't think they had great chemistry together, and I really don't think that the characters fit in that way. They're, the puzzle pieces don't exactly line up for me when it comes to their romance, um, and I just, I'm kind of glad that they shied away from it they only had like a hint of it in infinity war and they kind of moved on um i'm interested to see if they expand it in endgame since you know it's going to be really focused on the original six and their relationships with each other so i'm curious about that uh one thing i did really like though was the action the action here was fantastic um one thing i will say that is a positive about the final act is that they really put a Put an emphasis on saving lives along with fighting this endless robot army which um i think at the time was kind of surprising 
where uh, we had just come off of Man of Steel, we had just come off of the original Avengers, where everyone was really kind of starting to shift their focus to collateral damage and what really is accomplished when all of these major battles happen in the middle of cities and all of these civilians die while the Avengers or whichever hero is in that situation stands tall among the wreckage of civilians around him. So I liked that. And all of the action was a polished up version of the action we saw in Avengers. The effects were great. I loved the usage of Scarlet Witch's powers. I loved the effect with Quicksilver. All of his movements were fluid, they made sense, and they didn't look like any other uh, speedster power at the time. Uh, the Evan Peters Quicksilver, his uh, version of speed is very different. The Justice League, the Ezra Miller Flash is very different. The Grant Gustin Flash is very different. And all of them differentiate the, their super speed from each other, which I liked. And then the just the overall action with everybody. I liked Vision. I thought he was a great addition as well. And the use of his powers were really cool. The way he's able to uh, manipulate his density, his laser blast from what we now know as the Mind Gem, and all that stuff. I thought the action was really good. I also really liked Hawkeye. Hawkeye is the unsung hero of the original six Avengers, and he shines so bright in this film that when it came to uh, Infinity War, a lot of people were really disappointed that it didn't show up, myself included. But it does look like he's going to get more of a spotlight in Endgame, possibly as his last ride, so I'm interested to see exactly what he does there. But this film really laid the groundwork to get people to give a shit about Hawkeye. And they brought in his family, they made him almost like a uh, grizzled mentor figure to Scarlet Witch and to other members, and it really dealt with him being human, which set you up for the uh, expectation that he was going to die. So I really enjoyed it, I really enjoyed him, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of him in Endgame. Uh, one final negative, however, on the flip side, is Tony. I was not a fan of Tony in this film. Uh, we'll touch on this again, but I think that Joss Whedon has a way about him where he, when it comes to team dynamics, even though he can write them really well and he can, um, he can display teams working together really well, I think when it comes to the characterizations of members on a team, he boils them down to like their essential bits, which makes them stand out from each other, sure, but doesn't give them the layers or the uh, complexities that you should have in your lead characters. And when it comes to Tony, he kind of comes off as this know-it-all, all-seeing, all-knowing jackass, and he doesn't really have like a respect for his team, and... I could be totally off base, but from the viewings that I've had of those films, I don't think that this Tony is the Tony that we see in the Iron Man films, that we see in Civil War, that we see in Infinity War. And he has, on many occasions in this film and in the first Avengers film, a total just disregard for other people, which bothers me. Uh, the scene where they talk about how dangerous Ultron is and he just kind of laughs. It 
bothers me and that characterization of him bothers me and so when it comes to you know we hear a lot like team tony team cap especially around the time of infinite or uh, civil war uh it wasn't a hard choice and it didn't seem like it should be so i really was not a fan of tony's characterization in this film and that characterization really feeds into the first point with ultron making him this snarky sarcastic jackass of a villain because he gets all of that from tony stark so uh for those reasons uh avengers age of ultron is at number 14 and number 13 a number near and dear and close to my heart is captain america the first avenger i will say this film because i am sentimental because captain america is my fave and because of my internal biases and i will again repeat this is a subjective list um this film had a couple different placements on this list uh at times this was higher on the list at times this was lower on the list and it settled right around here and i had to look at it objectively i watched it a couple more times across the course of making this list and i had to put it here for the reasons that i'm about to talk about but um just know that for those of you who know my intense uh, fanboy-isms for Captain America, that I tried to be as fair and subjective in placing this film where I did. And uh, the first point as a positive is Steve freaking Rogers. Uh, Chris Evans is an actor who not a lot of people really either knew about or gave a shit about uh prior to these films he had a i thought a extremely well casting uh when it came to johnny storm in the fantastic four movies in the early 2000s i thought that was a perfect role for him and i was skeptical when he was first cast as captain america i didn't know exactly what to expect and when i came into the film seeing him for the first time he won me over and i was impressed and i have been impressed with him throughout his journey into uh all of the stuff that he's been through throughout the entirety of the mcu so far and this film really lays the groundworks for him going back to what i was saying about uh joss whedon kind of boiling people down in the avengers movies joss whedon the first two avengers movies joss whedon had a uh had a tendency to write him as a boring boy scout and while yes that is absolutely an aspect to him that's not the only aspect to him and i think this film along with winter soldier along with civil war along with um infinity war really shows this character who is of course wanting to follow the rules but knows that sometimes you have to break them to do what's right and this film whether it's him you know going over the head of tommy lee jones to go rescue bucky whether it's you know trying to uh, apply to the army under multiple false aliases he is a determined individual who's willing to do whatever it takes to 
do what's right and do what he thinks is right and someone with that kind of conviction is someone that you need to be at the head of your avengers team at the head of your mcu and this really laid the groundworks for him as a character uh also huge positives for uh peggy carter and bucky barnes uh sebastian stan and Haley atwell were wonderful castings and everything started in this film the dynamics between steve and peggy the dynamics between steve and bucky all of that stuff started here bucky is the steadfast friend who's now who is not above poking fun at his friend even after he's got the super soldier serum and peggy carter is shown as a commanding presence who really shows how useful she is at all times and she is not willing to stand aside for other people just because they look at her a certain way or women would treat it a certain way in the 40s and i i adore that i adore their dynamic for all of them and i really do think that they sell this film unfortunately the film does suffer from some pacing issues uh i think that a lot of the uh, montages, while uh, classic, and we will get into those a little bit later, really messed with the pacing. And I thought it's not... Uh, there are times where I think certain things could have been cut out, certain things could have been sped up, certain things could have been uh, explained away. And I think that if they had just done those things, the film itself would have been a little bit tighter. Uh, however, the film does really benefit from the uh, filmmaking styles of the past. Uh, some of the cheesy stuff that, again, we will get into at a later point, um, really helps sell the film. And I really enjoy the kind of Indiana Jones aspect that this film brings with the, you know, chasing after a MacGuffin, whether it be the Ark of the Covenant or the Tesseract, having the campy villains, having the kind of, uh, da 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 kind of, uh, soundtrack. The soundtrack is fantastic in this, and all of the adventuring that they do. I mean, for God's sakes, the, uh, the train sequence could have been ripped literally out of a Indiana Jones film. And I really think that the film benefits because at that point it sets itself uh, apart from the other films in the MCU, which each kind of had their own flavor. And this one really made a definitive stance on what Captain America's flavor was. Unfortunately, the film does also suffer from a weak finale. Um, a lot of people make fun of it, and I am one of those people but uh the whole him having to fly the plane into the ice doesn't make a lot of sense when you don't have the context of oh he's supposed to go down in the ice he freezes and then he wakes up decades later um that i think could have been handled differently uh once again with red skull who i think is a strong villain or he i'll re i'll rephrase had the potential to be a strong villain once again kind of falls into the camp of him having a similar backstory to tony and again with the phase one uh films he is basically just a darker version of tony or uh, of steve and really is just like hey let's put the hero up against his mirror in the villain and that's unfortunately 
the case here as well. And then the uh, the kind of non-ending with him and Red Skull, where Red Skull picks up the Tesseract, he gets transported, and we don't really get a definitive ending with their whole relationship, which I think is unfortunate. And with uh, the Red Skull reappearing in Infinity War, I hope we get to uh, really build more off of it. I really hope that uh, Red Skull does come back, whether it ends up being Hugo Weaving, whether it ends up being Ross Marquand, who did a fantastic job with him in Infinity War. I want to see more of him, and I want to see more of their fight. However, talking about a weak finale, the actual ending to the film I thought was one of the strongest scenes in the entire film. Steve waking up, him realizing that this ruse that S.H.I.E.L.D. has put up is there to deceive him, him breaking out, him running into modern-day New York, or modern-day New York in 2011 anyway, and the, the final line, the final line, and I get choked up every single time I watch this film, um, is, you know, Sam L. Jackson and the rest of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of corner him in the middle of Times Square, and, you know, he's like, are you okay? And Steve just saying, you know, I had a date. It gets me every time and it's a great great way to push him forward into the first avengers film uh including the post credit scene where the, you see him you know punch in the bag and it ends up being a later scene in the actual avengers film i really i really enjoyed it and i thought that was a perfect ending to this film bringing it into the modern day and the uh the score reflects that the cinematography reflects that and i really appreciate that uh, and the last point here, which I have is one of our, again, our few, both positive and negatives, is the amount of camp that is in this film. Uh, this film, once again, like I said earlier, uh, really takes a lot of design cues and a lot of, um, I think, a lot of uh, cinematic influences from former films, both uh like Indiana Jones and other films of the time that dealt with uh, really campy dialogue, the villains uh, being mustache twirling in this film too. We have the scene between a Red Skull and, um, oh, I can't remember his name now. Why am I having such a... Artem Zola. Uh, Red Skull and Artem Zola, where they are testing out the Tesseract weapons for the first time, and Artem Zola says, This will change the war! And Red Skull goes, No, Doctor, this will change the world! Is just so bad. And it's so bad, but it's so good! So there are a lot of campy choices, a lot of, you know, really cliched campy characters. The dialogue is not exempt from this either, as we just touched on, but I think with those negatives of it being so campy, and that same breath, it really helps sell the flavor of this film, which again, sets it apart from the other films at this point. I really enjoyed it, I think it's a great, great addition. But of course, as I said, I'm trying to look at this objectively. I really do think that it's something that can both elevate the film as well as hinder the film in the same breath. So that is why, along with the other reasons stated, this place is at number 13. Now for number 12, the very end of this 
week's portion of the countdown might be another controversial pick but at number 12 i have captain marvel now this is the newest film in the mcu uh the very final film leading into avengers endgame and released last month and for me i think that this film really places right here not the best not the worst this is a middle of the road film uh and I realize that that sounds negative, but I really enjoyed this film. Uh, for my full review, you can check out our uh, Geek Explained Extra, where I talk about the film, what I liked, what I didn't like. There's a full review there. Feel free to check that out. But I have, I still have my notes here. And uh, for the first positive, Carol Danvers is a welcome addition to the MCU. Not just because she's powerful. Not just because she is going to be a key in defeating Thanos. Not just because she is a f another female presence that we desperately need in the MCU, but because she is a hero that you can really get behind. A hero that you understand, a hero that you, even though you may not agree with some of her, uh, her mannerisms, some of her choices, you can see where she's coming from. You can see where she's making those choices. You can see how she is jumping from decision to decision, point to point in the story. Uh, she is headstrong, she is fun, she is snarky, and I think her dynamic is going to be really interesting to see when you get to Endgame, where she has to interact with all the other Avengers. Um, I loved her in this film, and I think for all the people who are really concerned about Brie Larson and all of the trailers... I will say that the trailers did not do her justice to her character or her story. I think she did a phenomenal job, and I think that when we're talking about going into phase form beyond with the MCU, uh, the Avengers, Marvel Cosmic, everything is in good hands, in very good hands. But when it comes to this film, another thing that I really liked was Carol and Nick Fury's relationship. Their dynamics were fantastic, they had great chemistry, all of their dialogue was fun, They, you could really get a sense that uh, Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson were having a great time filming this, and their characters gelled together really well. And I'm really interested to see if post-Endgame, Nick Fury and Carol get more scenes together to see just how much time has passed for them and how they are affected by it. I loved, loved all of the scenes where uh, Carol is like explaining to him what scrolls are. He's trying to get her through uh, security for Project Pegasus. All of their dynamic was really, really good. Uh, unfortunately, a negative I do have is that this film doesn't really break any new ground. Uh, a lot of people gave this kind of a, uh, a review saying that this is your, you know, kind of uh, basic cut-and-paste origin story. And while I can see it that way, um, I do disagree with that. I think that there are a lot of new... Uh, ideas in this mostly when it comes to marvel Com cosmic and the space element but i will admit that we didn't really break any new ground here uh we didn't really make anything that i think is going to be going forward uh the scrolls of course i think could potentially uh 
be a phenomenal uh, phase-wide villain for Phase 4, but it just depends on where they decide to go following this film. Um, I really want it to be good. Uh, I really want to, wanted to say that the film breaks new ground and makes it really stand out for me. I think I enjoyed Wonder Woman more. However, the thing that I really think that this film brings to, uh, to the MCU is more of a spotlight on the space element, which I think we have been pushing towards ever since the first Avengers film. Uh, the first, I want to say, the first quarter of the film really dives into the more cosmic corners of the MCU when we're talking about the Kree, the Skrull, the war that's going on with them, uh, Star Force, everything with that, I loved. I loved. I really, really loved. And I hope we see more of that going forward. Uh, unfortunately, the villain, I think, when it comes to Jude Law, when it comes to the Kree, I don't think they were the strongest. I would put them pretty much with the other Phase 1 films in that kind of regard. They're not bad but they're not great and uh i did like the uh the dynamic that carol had with young rog but i really was looking for something a bit more uh a bit more dynamic a bit more complex especially because we are now in a post thanos world where uh your villains need to have pathos if they want to even come close to some of the villains that we've had in recent years, Killmonger, uh, the Vulture, Thanos, I really would have liked to see that. And I think that this was almost a step backwards when it comes to the villains in this film. Uh, this also, I think, and I, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I thought we could have used more of Coulson in this film. I think that in another world, on Earth 2 or Earth 3 or wherever, uh, Coulson really could have taken the place of Fury here, and we could have had all that dynamic with Carol and Coulson. And I think that even though it was great to see Clark Gregg again, young Phil Coulson on his first day, I really would have liked to see more of him, and we didn't get enough, and I was really hoping we were going to get more. Uh, however, that being said, the film is fun. The film has a fun factor that you really need post-Infinity War. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, as we talked about last week, was a great palate cleanser, but it didn't really... I don't know, it didn't feel like it had the scope that it should have post-Infinity War. And this felt like it had scope. This was a galaxy-wide film. Whether whether or not we focus on every corner of the galaxy, this spanned a lot, and it dealt with a lot. And I really appreciated that. And also the throwbacks, the nostalgic throwbacks to the 90s, the blockbuster, uh, the fashion, the music, all of it added to the fun factor of this film and really sold it as having its own flavor. And again, when we're talking about how this, in my opinion, fits in really well with a Phase 1 film, if it had been Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Incredible Hulk, Thor, Captain America, Captain Marvel, going into Avengers, 
I think, especially because we do uh, deal with a phase one idea with the Tesseract, uh, I think it would have fit right at home. And it had its own flavor, and it felt different from all the other phase one movies. Nowadays, when you're talking about going out of the box when it comes to like Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, it doesn't feel as special, it doesn't feel as different, but if you look at it in the scope of this could have fit into the first phase, I think it's a much uh, much more vibrant and much more uh, it has a lot more identity uh, unfortunately it does also with some of the subject matter including the Tesseract and stuff there are possible continuity issues um, I even though they kind of telegraphed it from the start from the trailers I was not a huge fan of the uh, of the whole Nick Fury getting his eye scratched out by a cat or a flurgan excuse me, um, and all the stuff dealing with, like, uh, possible timeline differences with Winter Soldier and all the stuff that was talked about there, with the Tesseract, how that, you know, goes all over the place. Um, they can be explained. They can be explained, but if you have to go that far to explain it, I don't think that's a good way to go. Um, all that being said, I did really enjoy the film, and I think it places really really well in the uh the first as kind of the higher up of the first half of this list so uh for those reasons captain marvel is at number 12 and that is going to do it for this week of the countdown uh thank you very much for listening with us and listening with me going through this list next week we'll be picking it up once again with numbers 11 10 and 9 we're heading into single digits by the end of next week's list and uh we're edging ever closer ever closer we are uh less than a month away less than a month away to avengers endgame uh by the time that this episode goes up tickets will have already gone on sale for endgame and i'm sure they are probably already gone but um i'm excited for this film to come out i'm excited to share with you the rest of this list uh if you have your own list if you have thoughts and feelings about the placement of the film so far feel free again to reach out to me and talk to me about it on twitter or instagram at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod or through email because i'm an old man and i still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com and once again i want to thank you for listening with us each and every week uh, we are continuing on into volume two, into year two of Geek Explained, and I am having a great time. Um, WonderCon really lit the uh, the geeky fire back up with me and stirred that. So I'm excited to continue on with this, and I'm excited to see where this year takes us. But um, all of that is to come. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Stay tuned next week for our next episode. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.